Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today is the second episode with one of the best human performance journalists in the business, Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a science journalist and runner who writes about fitness, health, and endurance sports for Outside Magazine and other publications. His most recent book is the New York Times bestseller, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. In this episode, we discuss training for endurance, VO2 max, and leveraging the 80-20 rule to improve health and performance. But before we get started today, I have some exciting news for you. We are getting ready to let 100 people into the new AIM7 beta community. Now, this has been two years in the making, and I am pumped that our team is bringing this game-changing technology to folks who want to turn their wearable technology data into actionable recommendations to improve adaptive capacity. If you have an Apple Watch and exercise four more times a week, head over to aim7.com and sign up to join our beta community. Now, I have to let you know, this is going to be a very hands-on experience where we'll be conducting regular Zoom calls with the community, and we are going to actually ask people to apply to join because we want to make sure you have the best possible experience and that this solution is a fit for you. And honestly, you want to learn from folks who sincerely want to enhance their health and performance. So if this sounds like a fit for you, go ahead and sign up. All right, it's time for my conversation with Alex. So let's lean in and learn from the best. Alex, you, you were world-class middle distance runner and you, you obviously are very fit still. I'm are you still competing? I compete. Yeah. I mean, for fun, I, I, I race yeah. cross country and road races. Yeah. Well, you, you look phenomenal. Uh, I'd love to know, and just for the, for the folks listening here, like if you're training for endurance, like what are some of the basic principles for training for endurance? And I'd also love if you could, if you could talk a little bit about VO2 max and what it is and why it's important. Even our Apple watches now are reporting on VO2 max. Yeah. So, okay, let's start with VO2 max. VO2max is a measure of how much oxygen you can not just breathe in, but breathe in, transport from your lungs to your muscles, uh, have your muscles use as part of its aerob- their aerobic metabolism to generate energy to move. Um, so it's, uh, and, and the thing about aerobic metabolism, the, th- the thing about uh, using oxygen is that it's a sustainable source of energy. So if, if you want to go out and do something for two hours, you need to be doing it. You need to be uh, using oxygen to to supply that energy. And so VO two max just tells you what's what's the how good are you at that whole cycle of breathing in, transport, you know, using your heart to pump the blood to the muscles, and then having your muscles extract the oxygen and use it. So it's kind of a, a measure of how good your system is. And so if you want to know if someone's going to be a great marathoner, if you measure their VO two max. Uh, that's going to give you a good sort of estimate. It's definitely not the whole story. There's a lot of other things that go into who's going to win a marathon, how efficient they are, and and there's other aspects of their metabolism, like how well they handle lactate that will come into it. But VO2max, it's it's as good as anything. If if you've got 100 random people off the street, VO2max will tell you something about how good they are. What's an elite or how good they'll be at marathons? Uh, you're not in the game if you're not above 70 for the most part, 75, mm-hmm. probably closer to 80. The measurement is kind of, um, 
there's a lot of debate about about how accurate the measurements are once you get up because the equipment the equipment is not designed for elite athletes. So once you're up at 80 or so, that's probably a world class athlete. What's I think more interesting for most people is not so much what it tells you about how fast your marathon or your 5K is going to be, but that it's one of the very best predictors there is about how long you're going to live from you know the day you're tested. If you take a large group of people and you measure their VO2 max, and let's say they're you know they're all the same age or whatever, by and large the person with the higher VO2 max is going to live the longest. And that's there, there's probably a, a bunch of different factors there. One is that it, it tells you that your heart's working pretty well, like your mm-hmm. your your circulation is working pretty well. It also tells you that as you get older, activities that you might be able might have been able to do easily when you were young, like running up and down stairs, uh, you know, going up the street to do some shopping or whatever, they get harder and harder until they start to approach your VO2 max. And so in other words, until going up the stairs is going to be something that taxes your aerobic system to its max. And so you're going to, if, if your VO2, if your, if your aerobic fitness, which is another way of saying your VO2 max isn't good, that's going to prematurely lead you to start being less and less active. And that creates a spiral where then the less active you are, you, you get even less healthy and you die. So I, I don't recommend that anybody goes to a lab and tests the VO2 max, you know, once a month unless they're an elite athlete. Um, but now we've got these sort of estimates of VO2 max, which are imperfect. But but there there's something to 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 sort of be aware of and and be conscious of, and it's it's not a bad target to be trying to improve. I'm, I think this is really interesting for folks because, like you said, there's it's like you have this number, the VO2 max. But then below that, it's it's telling you a lot a lot about potentially cardiac output. It's telling you about uh, peripheral vasculature. It could be telling you about mitochondrial health. So it's kind of like this big score for all these subcategories that kind of get folded up underneath it. Are you familiar with Charlie Francis? Forget about Ben Johnson and all that stuff for a minute. He still was pretty good. He's tr- had a tremendous impact on the field and the in, in in the sprinting world. But you know, one of his things was. If you prove maximal output, then your operational output automatically increases, which makes a lot of sense. Like if um, if I can bench, you know, in the NFL combine, 225 test is kind of like this. It's stupid, by the way, because uh, for especially for offensive linemen, the longer your arms, the better you are, especially as a left tackle. And the longer you have to press, you're not going to be able to do. Anyways, I digress. But um, if I can bench 225 if I only my maximal bench press is only 300 pounds, I'm not gonna be able to do 225 that many times. But if I increase my max to maybe 350 or 375, guess what? 225 becomes so much easier. So as VO2 max in in the world of endurance, like man, this is a an, a maximal output. Then therefore, everything submaximal that should be somewhat easier. Am I on the right track at all? Absolutely. And, th- and this is a, a sort of this is one of the age-old debates in, in running circles, people will be like, why does VO2 max matter? When I run a marathon, I'm nowhere near my VO2 max because I'm, you know, I'm running much slower. VO2 max is kind of 5K race pace. But exactly what you're saying is that if, if you raise the ceiling, everything else gets uh, you know, comparatively easier. And so most of us spend very little time at VO2 max. But if you are doing the training doing the exercise, the workouts that increase your VO2 max, it's going to make everything else, everything at whatever intensity, uh, more sustainable, easier. It's going to be working on all these parts of your body. So yeah, it, you know, VO2 max is not the goal. It's just a marker help to, to help you figure out whether you're 
um, making progress towards your goal, whether that goal is racing performance or general health and longevity. Okay, so for the average person that let's say wants to go, maybe they want to go run a 10K or whatever, and they're they're trying to get into some type of endurance programming, or even with elite athletes, what is the mixture that should be there of these higher intensity types of sessions versus these lower intensity long runs, maybe zone two-ish type of long runs? Like what's the mixture kind of look like for elite athletes and maybe something that a novice could pattern match with? Yeah, I, this is actually a very easy question because there's been a ton of research on this and there's a pattern that yeah. recurs a lot. And, and it's it's a sort of roughly 80-20 pattern and 80 being the easy part and 20 the, the, the harder part. And it gets the name polarized training in some contexts. And it's a huge surprise to a lot of people. Like people, especially people, you know, to take up running for the first time, they think that everyone should be hard uh, because everyone is hard when you're out of shape. But that just means you're not fit enough yet and you need to slow down. Um, so for if certainly in my training, roughly 80% of the time back when I was training very seriously and now when I'm doing it recreationally, 80% of the time I could be having a, a, a chat with full sentences with a friend that I'm running with. It's pleasant. 20% of the time, uh, it's, it's pretty damn hard and, and, you know, sometimes extremely hard, like excruciating, but at least 80% of the time it's easy. And there've been studies. It's not, so that's, this is across like rowing cycling, cross-country skiing, running. Um, I've seen a lot of research in the Nordic skiing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this idea comes out of Norway. They were the first to identify it. So they, they've looked at it very carefully. So the Nordic skiing, there's a ton of it. So it's ubiquitous among elite athletes, but they've also done studies among recreational athletes. Because one of the big questions is, okay, it's fine for those guys who are training 12 hours a week. What if I'm training two hours a week? Should I really only be doing a small amount of, of high-intensity the evidence isn't perfect, but it tends to suggest, yes, even if you're only training three times a week, you shouldn't be sprinting all out three times a week. You should be going easier and going easier is going to make it for you to is going to make it easier for you to go longer, too. You can accumulate more training if you're not hammering all the time. You, that doesn't mean you do all easy all the time. Intensity has a has a place, too. But this sort of as, as a rough split. Yeah. 80, 20 is a pretty good way of thinking about it. Yeah, I um, this just. I'm very thankful that you you bring this up because I think in the general population, everybody wants to compress time, right? And they want to feel like they did something, some tremendous amount of effort in a short period of time. And I know the, the research is very clear uh, that, it, you know, high intensity interval training and sprint interval training, there is a distinct distinguishing factor between the two, one more mitochondrial density and one more on the respiration side. But albeit like you can have some pretty significant changes in cardiometabolic risk factors and cardiovascular health, but it does come at a significant cost. Like if you measure heart rate variability the next day, especially if you're not, if you're doing this consistent, like you can get overtrained really, really fast. Um, and there are whole fitness companies out there right now that it's just high intensity all the time. People wonder why they get burnt out. And so how could you take this, I mean, just in your general everyday life, you know, maybe two or three zone two runs a week, and then maybe that's like 80, 20, one hard session a week of maybe 20 minutes of intervals, something like that. The way I think of it, let's, let's say you, you do four, you're going to say you're going to do four workouts a week. Yep. One of them is going to be hard. And that doesn't mean every second of that one workout is going to be hard. It means one of them is going to include some hard efforts, probably going to be an easy warm up, and then you know, depending on the modality, maybe you're going to do 10 by one minute hard with one minute easy or something like that. 
And then, you know, or, you know, when, when my parents were, were, you know, wanting to get into exercise, I, I was, you know, just, and they're, you know, they're older, like, just start with, how about you include three or four 30 second surges in there? 30 seconds at an intensity that's going to make you uncomfortable and then stop and take as much recovery as you need. So it, there's a huge spectrum of, of what's appropriate depending on where someone is at in, the, in their fitness game. But, but but my advice to my parents certainly was, yeah, the other three days of the week, just just enjoy it. Like watch a video, listen to some music, um, pedal at a comfortable place. Or for them, you know, like, you know, my dad's in They're both in their 80s now. It's like, go for a walk. A, a walk is great. Now, for me, that's the walk is not going to c- cut it to, to challenge my cardiovascular system, but it, but it will at some point, right? So it's, it changes with time. Yeah, there was actually a study my dad just sent me showing like, you know, the difference between walking at a regular pace and a brisk pace and its impact on longevity. It was pretty significant. And so, you know, if you're aging, you know, or if you're out of shape, going for a brisk walk, and if you were to track that, that could get you high enough. For, for a number of people, but the orthopedic cost is going to be really, really low and your risk of injury is pretty low, right? And then you can find different modalities to ramp it up. But I really appreciate your wisdom on this as somebody that's experienced uh, personally and also writes on this subject at a very you know, high level. Thanks for listening to the Blueprint Podcast. And if you want to support the show, please smash the subscribe button on whichever listening platform you're joining us from. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.